sitting here with Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology at RTS Washington and scholar in the studies of the late 19th, early 20th century Dutch theologian named Herman Bavink. And Gray, you've been doing this work during a kind of revival of Bavink studies and, and uh, continental theology, uh, studies in continental theology, including a work that just came out called Neo-Calvinism, uh, A Theological Introduction, and has gotten a bit of fanfare of late. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your area of expertise here. Tell me a little bit about Neo-Calvinism. What is it? Why is it important? And should we be paying attention to it today? Yeah, first of all, it's wonderful that you've already located Neo-Calvinism with the Dutch Reformed theologian in the 19th century named Hermann Bavink, because the first thing we got to say, at least in our American climate, is that Neo-Calvinism is not New Calvinism. New Calvinism refers to a kind of Reformed-ish resurgence in the mid-2000s, right. yeah. uh, referring to maybe figures like John Piper, uh, other adjacent figures like John MacArthur, and even figures like Mark Driscoll. And so when people think about new Calvinism, they think about this um, non-confessional, intra-denominational American resurgence and a sort of recovery of the five points of Calvinism, of tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, perseverance of the saints, so on, so on, right? That kind of preaching for um, the American churches. So, so neo-Calvinism is not that. Neo-Calvinism refers to a much older movement rooted again in the writings of Herman Bavink and Abraham Kuyper. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as Kuyperianism or Neo-Kuyperianism, but we basically try to recover the original sense of the term Neo-Calvinism. So we can talk about this in a variety of different angles. Um, so Neo-Calvinism has a few facets uh, that are that are unique to it that we try to argue for in the book. Uh, the first is that it's a recovery of Yes, Orthodox Protestant Reformed theology and the Protestant confessions, but it is a recovery of Protestant confessionalism for the modern age. So that's really one of the most distinctive characteristics of it. Kuyper and Bobbing thought we need to recover the principles from Calvin and also 17th century Dutch Reform Orthodoxy, but how do we do so in such a way where it is attractive to the modern world? How do we do so in a way that isn't alienating and at the same time shows that in this broad confessional orthodoxy, we can actually accommodate a lot of the things that we see in the modern world, things like pluralism, things like uh, the importance of freedom, of, of, of um, individuality, of authenticity, all these sort of newer ideas that were coming up in the Romantic and Enlightenment period, right? How do we accommodate it with Dutch Reformed principles? And so we want to try to argue that it is precisely in this theological movement, birth from Kuiper and Bobbing, that we can actually have this um, two polarities come together, confessional orthodoxy on the one hand, and yet a sanguine openness to the contemporary period, that there's always something to learn from the contemporary period, even though it's very antagonistic against Christianity. And there's lots of theological resources in our tradition to accommodate, while at the same time not end up in syncretism, if that makes sense. And that's a really hard balance, because oftentimes when we accommodate, we just say, let's water down Christian. Christianity and, and Christian orthodoxy, but that's not what we're trying to say. We want to accommodate while at the same time confront the contemporary culture. How do we do that? And neo-Calvinism is a way forward to do that. We can talk more about that. Yeah. So it's it's broader than the, as you said, the new Calvinism or, you know, what you know, Colin Hansen 
famously titled you know, Young, Restless, and Reform Movement to talk about the younger folks in that movement. It's not really based around merely soteriology, yep. like TULIP, as yep. you said, the canon of Dort, but it's a much broader system, particularly with this interest in, and this is what Kuyperianism is known for, I think, so much, and Neo-Calvinism is known for, an interest in engaging with a public theology, right? And I love the way you said that. That's I, I hadn't thought about it that way, that it's 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 not just engaging with public theology as such. It's thinking, okay, what's what has changed? You know, Calvin produced... All of this interesting information, the the the, the Continental Reformation uh, produced all of this interesting thought, but now we have to deal with things like liberty and pluralism and reason versus faith. You know, issues that they weren't dealing with maybe as explicitly. And thinking through, how do we engage the modern world in a way that's reformed and yet? Now you use this term syncretistic. And so mm-hmm. for our listeners at home, what do you mean about that? You said it's not syncretism, it's engagement, but not syncretism. What do you mean by that? Right. Syncretism is when you compromise Christianity so that you're combining aspects of Christianity with an aspects of an alien philosophy, an alien worldview, whatever you want to call it. So maybe a syncretistic view would, would try to say that Christianity doesn't really challenge um, a particular culture, but actually Christianity can baptize um, concepts within that culture or practices within that culture. And that's what neo-Calvinism wants to avoid to do. It wants to actually say to you that you can challenge the culture without condemning it because there's going to be common grace in every culture. And at the same time, it can anticipate and fulfill the culture's longings without accommodating it in such a way where you end up just approving it with a rubber stamp, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That you end up actually saying, hey, we can fulfill what you want while subverting um, its expectations. So one of the biblical examples for this that that, uh, lots of neo-Calvinists point to is 1 Corinthians 1, right? This idea that uh, God is the power and wisdom of man, right? So the Jews demand power and the Greeks demand wisdom, but God's power is, is, is weakness to man and foolishness to the Greeks, right? Um, so, so the idea there in Paul is that, okay, the Jews want this power and the Greeks want this wisdom. And he's not just saying, well, we don't offer power and wisdom. So let's just get rid of the categories of power yeah. and wisdom. He actually says, no, actually properly considered, Christianity offers true power and true wisdom. So it's taking this language from the Jews and the Greeks and what they want. It's taking their expectations and saying, hey, we can give you power and wisdom, but it is not the power and wisdom that you're expecting. So instead of just rejecting the categories of power and wisdom altogether, it's saying, hey, we can actually give you that. Mm -hmm. Christianity has a better understanding of power and wisdom. So it's not just mere antithesis saying, we don't want power and we don't want wisdom. But it's not mere acceptance. Oh, you want power and wisdom? We'll give you your power and wisdom, yeah. right? So we, we can give you power and wisdom, but according to a Christian understanding of it. So this is the, a method called subversive fulfillment. And in the book, we try to talk about it in terms of the pliability of Christianity, that Christianity can find the good in any culture. And because human beings are made in the image of God, every culture will... expect that, right? Yeah. Exactly. Will unwittingly reflect something about God's truth they're always in touch with general revelation. They're always benefiting from common grace. So despite their sinful principles, they will still end up echoing the inescapability of Christianity, if that makes sense. And so we can be sanguine to every culture, even when it looks very, very evil and pernicious, precisely because God is patient and yeah. God does not give us over to our own 
uh, worse mm-hmm. selves, if that makes sense. So we try to cover kind of the theological basis for that. That's so powerful, I think, as we're thinking not only about the world around us, but as ourselves, as, as we're thinking about ourselves, that we should expect to find beautifully transcendent ideas and we should expect to find terribly aberrant and destructive ideas, right? As you look at any culture, because we are both image of God and under the burden and the curse of sin. Right. And and and, and I love that that approach. Um, you know, one of the ways that, that Kuiper articulates this famously is a very well-known phrase where he says that it's, you know, that there's not one square inch of creation, right? And he's talking about all the institutions and ideas in the world over which Christ does not claim mine. I'm sure I just butchered that. I actually no, learned recently, you know, I think Hank Vandenbelt was here actually and, and informed us that it's not one square inch, but it's one thumb width mm-hmm. uh, of creation of which Christ does not declare mine. And I love that idea of going out into the world and recognizing that there is Life, there are life-giving aspects mm-hmm. that we find in the world, and there's there's destructive. There are destructive aspects, and all of it needs to be brought in. That's another way of thinking about this: brought in under the lordship of Christ. That's how it's not syncretism. Mm-hmm. We're not conforming Christ to the world, but mm-hmm. the world is conformed under Christ's leadership, right? And ruler. Yeah, and so you're right to mention that so much of neo-Calvinism is associated with a public theology, the public dimensions of the Christian life. So we're thinking about Christian philosophy. Christian political theology, um, Christian ethics, uh, Christian views of scholarship, science and art, things like that. But what we were trying to accomplish in this book is to show that while there's actually a lot of resources covering these public dimensions of neo-Calvinism, what's actually not been really discussed is the theology itself. Mm-hmm. Like what are the theological foundations of neo-Calvinism such that it can allow itself to be occupied with or to give due attention to these public arenas, right? So what kind, what what is under the hood, so to speak? What is the engine that drives neo-Calvinism theologically? What are the foundations such that these political areas can be given attention to by, by this tradition? So the book really just lays that out. Um, so it talks about neo-Calvinism as both being a Catholic and modern movement. It talks about the doctrine of general revelation and how neo-Calvinism tried to articulate that in a very distinct modern context. It tries to talk about the doctrines of common grace and also the ways in which the image of God is being unfolded in these authors. So there's actually lots of key doctrinal ideas that may have been eclipsed by the focus on the public dimensions. And so I think when when we read critics of neo-Calvinism, that's what they've been picking up. They're saying, you know, neo-Calvinism is a non-theological preoccupation with cultural endeavors that that neo-calvinism is very earthly that it forgets god that it, it's really just about how christians can win culture how christians can transform culture when it really is sparked by doctrine by theology by confessional theology that that when kuiper and bobbing were writing their material they were really reflecting upon a, a sort of critical reception of 17th century reform orthodoxy and they were saying what are these uh, uh, key features of our tradition that allows us to be open to the modern, that allows us to be open to the world? And I think that's a really important recovery. Yeah, that it's the critique that you hear today of people who know about neo-Calvinism will often critique it as a sort of um, unexamined engagement with culture and sort of using 
using this category of neo-Calvinism or Kuyperianism to sort of just, as you said, baptize sort of a Christian um, you know, dissolution into the culture around it or something like that. Um, and they missed the, the deep rootedness of a Kuiper and a Bavink, mm-hmm. deeply rooted, as you said, in biblical teaching, you know, deeply rooted in the Reformed Catechism and Confession. So as we talk about that confessional rootedness, what are some of the key doctrines, uh, the, the key underpinnings of Reformed theology, of, of, of neo-Calvinism as they're going out now and engaging with the modern world? Yeah, so I mentioned a few of them. I mentioned the doctrine of general revelation, the image of God, um, the doctrine of scripture. Also, we need to talk about common grace mm-hmm. and creation and recreation, right? Um, so, so I'll mention just just two here. And Corey Brock, um, he co-authored this book with me, and he can talk about uh, other aspects as well. If you asked him, I'm sure we'll have Corey here and on campus, I'm sure, soon enough. But um, I'll mention perhaps uh, just two here okay so so first is the doctrine of general revelation for the neo-calvinist the doctrine of general revelation has to do with creating uh well god reveals himself to every single person universally given creation right god reveals himself through his handiwork god reveals himself through creation and providence and through all of human history so that everyone is without excuse everyone knows god this is a reflection of romans 1. And what the neo-Calvinists did with this doctrine is that they they reflected upon uh, the romantic idea of intuition, of a knowledge of the heart, a knowledge without concepts. And they basically argued that what if general revelation has to do primarily with non-conceptual, immediate, tacit knowledge, we could put it that way, mm-hmm. and such that everyone knows in their heart that there is a God, there is truth, beauty, and goodness out there, even though they might not articulate it. And so... When, when Kuiper and Bavink reflected on this, they called this an infused knowledge of God. That's Kuiper's language. Bavink calls it a knowledge without concepts. And um, what they, they started to argue is that what if, you know, what unbelieving worldviews do, what, what non-belief does is that it creates a propositional belief or a, a belief in the head that doesn't match with what they know in their heart, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So... All non-believing um, world visions and systems of the world that, that is erected by non-Christians would end up saying something, and this is kind of putting in layman's terms, would end up saying something that no one could really live by, mm-hmm. would end up saying something that no one could really believe in their heart, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So uh, Tim Keller wrote a, a wonderful chapter for, for another work that, that is coming out called the TNT Clark Handbook to Neo-Calvinism. He wrote the chapter on neo-Calvinism and pastoral ministry. And he says that really this means that if you follow the neo-Calvinist belief, when you when you are an unbeliever, you're going to end up having a, a discord between what you say in your head versus how you feel in your heart, if that makes sense. So that if general revelation is true, everyone feels that there is a God. Everyone feels that there is something wrong in the world. And they're trying to articulate something about that. But because they don't believe in God, they would end up articulating something that goes against their their core affection, if we could put it that way. And so if that's the case, then when you are preaching the gospel, right, you're never preaching the gospel to a blank canvas. You're always preaching the gospel in a context where there is a point of contact. Uh, No matter where you are in the world, you would always feel that there is something wrong with the world and that there is a God out there. 
And so when you're preaching the gospel, you're not doing this to a blank slate. You're always hitting something in the heart of the, of the non-believer. And so um, this means that for the neo-Calvinists, there's kind of, kind of a general skepticism towards um, rational arguments for God's existence as the way to do apologetics or missions, right? There's a, there's a kind of um, a, a, a tipping of the hat to it. Uh, maybe sometimes it could be helpful, but really that's not the main way in which people know God. Mm-hmm. It's not by regurgitating the cosmological argument that right. you show that somebody can know God, but they're already wrestling with the problems of life. And so they, 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 they've been longing for an answer, but they've been looking for it in the wrong direction. And so no matter where you're going, no matter what culture you're going, there's that openness to modern culture, precisely mm-hmm. because even if they are, the, you know, the most anti-theistic sort of people, they're still wrestling with God in their heart mm-hmm. and they can't get away with it. Mm-hmm. And so how do you get the gospel to meet their existential need for it in their heart? Because there's going to be, again, a disconnect between what they say and what they actually feel. And I think that's a really powerful way. So it makes apologetic a very flexible sort of endeavor no matter mm-hmm. who you're meeting with there's always something there that you can meet uh, as, as a point of contact and also it becomes a very conversational and and it allows you to listen well to the to the unbeliever if that makes sense rather than just kind of waiting to regurgitate one argument that you heard or something like that okay so that's the first doctrine general revelation second doctrine is this idea of creation and recreation now we're going to talk about all the other things, antithesis, common grace, and um, um, image of God, all those other topics that we can talk about and doctrine of scripture. But creation and recreation, and, and my friend Corey Brock wrote the chapter in our book for this uh, primarily. And, and basic creation and recreation says that what redemption tries to achieve, what Christ wants to achieve in his work of atonement is so that we would be restored that we would actually be restored to our original destiny, mm-hmm. that in the garden, God had promised Adam and Eve this world, right? And that therefore grace, redemption, restores nature. And so our telos in recreation is not a wholly new sort of replacement of this world, but it's rather a, a kind of consummate version of what Adam would have had. So this is really rooted in the reformed teachings of the covenant of works, right? Then in the garden, Adam and Eve were promised a consummate eternal life, a consummate creation. And Adam and Eve forfeited that by the fall. And now what Christ had come to do as a second Adam is to restore us to that original trajectory of Adam and Eve, right? So, which means that what the church is doing now, when God is redeeming us, is to witness to this consummate existence. Um, it's to show uh, in, in a very slight, fragmentary, and imperfect way what God wants us to be in the last day. That there is a continuity between this world and the next world, if that makes sense. Now, that continuity is not by way of our incremental progress into that world. It's not as if we bring the kingdom down with our labor. No, that's a misunderstanding of neo-Calvinism. But rather, it's, it's a witness to what God is doing now it's because that the spirit is working in the kingdom now and it's pointing to what that new world would look like in the future. There's going to be great discontinuity, but there'll be great continuity as well. And so when Christians are making art, when Christians are making scholarship and things like that, it's not that those artifacts of art or scholarship is going to be in the next world, but rather the seeds of your personality, right? The seeds of that longing to see all of creation to reflect something about the glory of God. That is going to be 
consummated and fulfilled in the last day, if that makes sense. Um, so lots could go into that, but those are the two doctrines that we can talk about. Creation, recreation, that trajectory of grace restoring nature and also of general revelation. That's great. So everybody go out and pick up a copy of Neo-Calvinism Theological Introduction by Grace Sutanto and Corey Brock. Thanks, Dr. Sutanto. Grateful to finally talk about this. Good.